Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So once again, a huge thank you to those of you that support the podcast via Patreon. Every pledge helps, so a big warm thank you to you all. The response to the recent episodes and the quality research series has been immense. It seems like the podcast is rippling through the lives of more and more people. And I think we're approaching around 60,000 downloads since the podcast began. 18 months ago or so. And coming up on the podcast, I have a series on clinical reasoning. There's a series planned on critical physiotherapy, plus many more AMAs. So on this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Marianne Lee and Professor Bjorn Hoffman about their recent paper titled De-Diagnosing a Novel Framework for Making People Less Ill. And that was published in the European Journal of internal medicine, and I've linked the paper in the show notes. Marianne holds a postdoc position in clinical pharmacy at the University of Oslo. She obtained a PhD in clinical pharmacy in 2019, and her research focuses mainly on multi-morbid patients and how we can optimise the healthcare provided to them. She works as a clinical pharmacist at the Hospital Pharmacies Enterprise in southeastern Norway, conducting tasks such as medicine reconciliation, medicine reviews, and de-prescribing. Björn is a scholar of philosophy of medicine and bioethics, with a special interest in the relationship between epistemology and ethics. He's affiliated with the Department of Health Science at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology and the Centre for Medical Ethics at the University of Oslo. Bjorn originally trained in the natural sciences, but is now interested in the history of ideas and philosophy. His main fields of interest include basic concepts for healthcare, including disease, causality, overdiagnosis, medicalization, and severity. He's also interested in the norms of knowledge, including knowledge generation, evidence production, norms of science and forms of rationality. So in this episode we speak about what a diagnosis is, both from a social constructionist view, but also the biological components which seek to categorise such diagnostic labels. We talk about the primary role that diagnoses and the process of diagnosis plays in healthcare, and how they structure healthcare systems, economics, and clinical specialisms. Marianne and Bjorn outline the problem of too much medicine and too much diagnosing. And we discuss the process of de-diagnosis, that is, the removal of diagnoses that do not contribute to reducing the person's suffering. We talk about diagnostic creep and expansion and about the increase in diagnosis and disease screening. We talk about the positive and negative consequences of a diagnosis And we also talk about the powerful implications of a diagnosis, including stigmatisation, discrimination and guilt. We talk about the psycho-behavioural effects of embodying or living with a diagnosis, 
And finally, we talk about the relationship between de-prescribing and de-diagnosing. So this was such a fun conversation. It drew together so many great topics which I've covered on the podcast. And many of us have a spidey sense of the problem of overdiagnosis, but we may be unable to structure a solution to it. Well, fortunately, Marianne and Bjorn have offered a compelling way to start to undo the harms of overdiagnosis. And as you'll hear, Bjorn offered to come back on the show and dive even deeper into the topics of medicalization and overdiagnosis, to which I bit his hand off. So stay tuned. So I bring you Dr. Marianne Lee and Professor Bjorn Hoffman. Bjorn, Marianne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So this is such an exciting conversation that the topic that we're going to kind of launch into is kind of close to a range of episodes which I've had on the podcast around course health and philosophy for healthcare and diagnosis and all these really crucial kind of primary questions around healthcare. So I'm looking forward to, for, to launching into those. But before we do, perhaps you could start both of you introducing yourself and your, your current work and how you describe what you do. I'm Marianne Lea. I'm a pharmacist by background and I'm currently a postdoc in clinical pharmacy at the University of Oslo. Uh, I, uh, I'm also uh, a clinical pharmacist at the Hospital Pharmacist Enterprise. Uh, I have experience as a clinical pharmacist in the hospital setting for more than 10 years. Uh, conducting medicine reviews and de-prescribing. Um, I also hold a PhD in clinical pharmacy and my research is uh, focused mainly on multimorbid patients and how we can optimize and tailor the healthcare provided to this patient group. Brilliant. And Björn? And uh, my name is uh, Björn Hoffman. I'm a, a researcher and a professor at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology at Jøvik, but also at the University of Oslo. And I do uh, philosophy of medicine and medical ethics, research ethics and uh, philosophy of science, but also the uh, philosophy of uh, technology. So that's my main areas of interest. And so you've got an interesting background, Bjorn. You came from the natural sciences, is that right? Yes, I'm, I'm trained as a, an engineer and worked at a hospital for about 10 years with technology. And then I went to uh, philosophy and ethics uh, after that. So uh, I'm, in a way, have a double background. I also have a background in the history of ideas. So I came to know your work, both your, your recent paper, which we're going to send to this discussion on, which is De-Diagnosing, a Novel Framework for Making People Less Ill. And that was in the European Journal of Internal Medicine. And I'll link the, the paper in the show notes. But a colleague of mine who's in Oslo, uh, Christian Fossum, at Campus Christiana, I think is the institution, said, have you seen this? <laughs> or a possible podcast episode. And then I read the paper, was kind of blown away by by its... I suppose the messaging within it and it's the kind of purpose around it. So this is how I came to know your work and then did some extra reading and found out, Bjorn, you've been speaking about overdiagnosis and de-diagnosing for a few years now, not not just the last six months since I found your work. Yes, uh, I think um, um, I've been preoccupied with uh, 
diagnosis for quite uh, a lot of years in, in many ways. I think, uh, I mean, diagnosis is key to medicine and healthcare because that's action guiding, it's organizing our knowledge and uh, showing where we're going. But uh, it also uh, uh, has some options or possibilities for going astray. Uh, I'm very preoccupied uh, with uh, using diagnosis for the good of individual patients, but also for professionals and society at large. So that's, I think, my main interest. And also, there is a specific rationality behind the systems of diagnosis and also setting diagnosis. So as I'm preoccupied with, with various types of rationality and also irrationality, of healthcare, that's in a way why I think it's important also uh, to focus on diagnosis, uh, overdiagnosis, uh, medicalization, and also when we go too far or do too much on de-diagnosing. And so we'll touch on some of those related terms, medicalization, overdiagnosis. They're not, there's some nuance between them. They're not necessarily, they're used interchangeably, aren't they? But they're you've spoken about them as being a little bit different. So we can maybe touch on those. But how did you both become interested in this idea of overdiagnosis? So Marianne, I can get a sense as a clinician that you would have encountered diagnoses in the past of your patients, but Bjorn perhaps not so. So, so Marianne, how did you get into overdiagnosis or de-diagnosing? Uh, well, um, I met Bjorn. <laughs> and then... Um... I learned from him uh, the background and the theory behind diagnosis, uh, and I, I believe I, I have combined the theory with my clinical experience, working a lot with the deep prescribing. I have experienced that uh, it's important that we know which diagnosis a patient have, because uh, diagnosis and medicines they are deeply connected. And also, if I may fill in, it's quite interesting because uh, I'm uh, holding and responsible for a, a course at the University of Oslo, Critical Perspectives on Health and Disease. And Marona was uh, one of the participants. As part of that course, uh, uh, you are supposed to write an essay. Uh, and uh, Marona wrote an excellent essay on de-diagnosing. So I very much encouraged her, oh, you should work more on this. And this is really good. And uh, and uh, Mariana has a very good memory, so uh, she had a lot of work with her PhD and other things, uh, but she never let the thought uh, go away. So after some years, she picked it up again and she contacted me. And, and then we started to work on, on this and, and the result is, is the paper and it's been very, very fruitful. And Mariana has also been invited for a lot of uh, talks in the Norwegian media uh, about this. So it really has... Um, got some traction. So I'm very, very happy for that. So good courses or good participants at courses is, uh, is a good source for, uh, for uh, developing a resource, I think. And I suppose like any good philosophy type discussion is to begin to problematize or at least begin to define what a diagnosis is. And so we're using this term and we're, it's thrown around you know, every day in clinical practice and amongst patients and family members who aren't related to, to, to healthcare. But what is a diagnosis? Well, a diagnosis is a label for disease mainly. It comes from, the term comes from Greek dia, which means between, and gnosis, which means understanding or knowledge. Hence, diagnosis is some kind of discerned 
by knowledge. So it's a way of differentiating, sorting things out by knowledge. And it is in a way a social construct and it's, as it is made by humans. And also it changes very much over time. It's quite interesting to see how we get new diagnoses and some of them die and then we get they're replaced by others. And all this, of course, is generated by, by human activities, especially our knowledge, of course, and, and, and the new ways of diagnosing or testing or detecting specific conditions. Uh, but it's also based on biological factors. Uh, and these factors uh, come together with social and also experiential factors from, from the person experiencing various types of uh, suffering and and diagnosis is influenced by all these. So there are some biological factors, there are some social factors, and there are also some experiential factors going into diagnosis. So it's a way of trying to discern what we experience and try to reclassify them in order to be able to study uh, various types of diseases, but also certainly uh, to try to help people. So you, you you described it as a social construct in part, and but based on, would it be fair to say it's largely based on objective biological phenomena? So the disease processes and the stuff happening under microscopes is happening regardless of not people are paying attention to it. So most of that meaning comes from objective, and I'm using air quotes, but stuff happening within cells and people's bodies or people's minds, I suppose. So where does the, the, the social bit comes in and being able to piece this stuff together to ascribe some kind of taxonomy to it? That's a really great question. Uh, uh, and of course, it, it really touches on, on the basic issues in philosophy of, uh, of science and medicine, definitely. Uh, because, uh, well, how strong are the biological factors? How important are they? And of course... Um, some would say that many of the things that we see in our microscope uh, is very much a social contingent uh, view we have on uh, on various uh, biological facts underneath. So I, I don't think we are able to to settle the issue on how strong uh, the um, like uh, biological factors of uh, of diseases and diagnosis, how strong they are. Um, contingent on, on social uh, issues or how strongly they are socially constructed. But uh, I think many people would accept that, at least in some ways, it's not all a social construction. There are some factors you cannot socially construct uh, life or death. At a certain point, people die and sometimes they die of things inside them. And these things happen, whether we call them uh, uh, this or that. So, so those things will, will happen. But then comes the question, well, how strong are the social aspects? And I think the important thing with disease and diagnosis is that there is a moral impetus related to, uh, to suffering in some way. And so if people suffer, we try to help them and we feel uh, obliged uh, to help them. Some feel a quite strong uh, imperative to help people. And to do so, we try to find out, okay, what's what uh, are they suffering from? What is happening to them? By trying to classify what is happening to them, we find measures to try to help them. Uh, so there's a strong social commitment uh, in diagnosis. We do diagnose in order to try to help people. So there's a moral, uh, in a way, impetus or even imperative in our classification system. We try to classify so that we are able to 
talk about the conditions they have in a better or more efficient way. And of course, also to try to help people with their suffering. So there is a strong uh, social component uh, and it's partly also uh, moral uh, because we want to help them. And I think at that point you said one of the functions of a diagnostic label or diagnosis is to, is to be able to talk about the, the diagnoses. But I would say that you're quite right. The problem is that we end up spending time talking about the diagnoses rather than the people with the diagnoses. I mean, that, that the diagnosis itself captures the attention of scientists and researchers and clinicians perhaps more than it should, or at least it's the focus of care and discourse rather than the people which are possessing that diagnosis. That's a, an excellent point. And of course, it's um, for me who've been working with uh, technology in various types, uh, that's uh, an error we, we, we tend to, uh, to commit all the time. Uh, we focus on the tool instead of the task, so to say. So we become very, very preoccupied uh, with the classification systems and the diagnosis uh, instead of the persons who have the conditions uh, and who we label uh, with the specific diagnosis. But I think it's very important to remember uh, the functions of diagnosis because they are there in order to sort out how the world is or how we conceive of the world in order for us to help people better. And that's also where the point comes in with regards to de-diagnosing because at the point where we diagnose for the purpose of uh, the system or the diagnosis or the labeling instead of the aim of trying to help people, we should stop labeling. And we should also uh, try to uh, de-label and de-diagnose at, at those, uh, those instances. And I think that's why it's so important that we acknowledge which functions diagnoses have. Uh, and diagnoses have many, many functions. And if we focus on, on the good functions and try to avoid some of the um, adverse effects, the, the side effects of, of labeling, we can avoid some of the points or some of the challenges that you point out that we become so preoccupied with labeling that we forget what the labels are for or what they are there for. So if you if you allow me, I, I can mention some of the core functions of uh, of diagnosing, uh, which I think are both both uh, good and bad. And I think it's very important that we focus on these functions in order to avoid some of the effects that you mentioned, i.e., that we become so preoccupied with diagnosing that we forget the person that we use these labels for. Yeah, I also thought about um, when Bjorn says that uh, it's too much diagnosing. I believe we also want with our paper to to get uh, clinicians reflect upon the effects of diagnosis on the person holding the diagnosis. And also, Mariana, as we tend to uh, be so good with our uh, technologies for detecting various conditions and labeling them, it's very fascinating that we are getting so good. But of course, uh, if we lose the um, 
perspective on, okay, who will gain from this, then we really have a problem. And of course, if we just use the opportunities we have to detect conditions and label them due to various uh, scientific and technological improvements, uh, like it's an imperative of opportunity, uh, like the radiologists, uh, some of them who I work with, they say, oh, sometimes we scan because we can. And of course, that's a, a, a really a big problem. So that induces quite a lot of diagnosis, which may not be so um, beneficial to, to the patients, I think. But Madonna, you have also worked a lot with uh, de-prescribing, uh, which also illustrates this, where we have been so good at prescribing, finding diagnosis and prescribing drugs for that. And that's quite also related. Maybe you could say something about that. Yes, well, when we pharmacists uh, do um, medicine reviews, it's uh, important for us to have the list of diagnoses for the individual uh, because uh, then we could um, decide which medicines is best for this individual person we have in front of us. And like diagnosis is also the same with medicines that one physician prescribes one medicine and another another medicine and patients tends to see one specialist for one problem and another specialist for, for another problem. So it's often the way that the, the medicine list is getting longer and longer. And it's a problem when we never, never stop and consider when is it enough and when, when should we, we start taking medicines away and not just prescribing more and more. And I presume that would be happening anyway with physicians and pharmacists, but it sounds like it may not always be happening or that, that people aren't reviewing medicines or de-prescribing. I believe that healthcare professionals, especially engaged in de-prescribing, often are uh, generalists like uh, geriatricians or f- uh, pharmacists or GPs. But the way that uh, our healthcare is organized in the way that patients are, are seeing different uh, specialists for different uh, diseases, it's uh, not always uh, that each specialist uh, make these general assessments. So, so and we can come, I think in the paper, there's an example of where de-diagnosing and de-prescribing take place. There's an osteoporotic female patient that, that we can maybe come back to, or we can talk about it now, but maybe we can just earmark that to, to use as an example. But because I want to firstly hear Björn's outlining of diagnoses, pros and cons. But at the same time, we've got to begin to unpack what the concept of de-diagnosing is, or maybe we'll get to the process too. But So maybe we can start initially with Björn, you just outlining the good, bad and the ugly with regards to diagnoses. Yes. And also, let me just... Um step a little bit back and and look historically on what has happened with regards to the number of diagnoses, because de-diagnosis has a context with regards to we have maybe too many diagnoses now. We have become too good at diagnosing in a way. 
And if you go back historically, uh, like uh, in uh, 1763, uh, Savage uh, published what has been called Nosologica uh, Methodica, and he uh, depicted uh, or mentioned 2,400 units or diagnosis in that. And if we have, uh, <laughs> go fast forward to, to ICD-11 in 2018, there are more than 55,000 codes in there. So, of course, there has been a, a, a differentiation, a, a fine graining of, of uh, conditions. But at, additionally, uh, because of the vast increase in knowledge and technology, we have added many, many diagnoses and certainly uh, for the good in, in many cases. But what we've tried to focus on are those cases where these diagnoses actually do not benefit persons. So that's in a way the uh, the backdrop of, of this. And of course, due to uh, the increased awareness on the, in a way, too much medicine, too much diagnosing, overdoing things, there has been a in a way, uh, a counter movement or a reflection in various types of like the Choosing Wisely campaign, the Too Much uh, Medicine uh, movement as well. So slow medicine and, and there are a wide range of uh, movements who've tried to um, to focus on this. So, so and, and the point is, I think, and the end and goal of all of them is try to, to calibrate medicine and healthcare to using diagnosis and using its powerful tools only where it actually benefits, uh, benefits patients. And that's the nub of it, the benefits the patients bit. Who decides that? And I think you def- you describe or define de-diagnosing as removing a diagnosis which 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 contributes to the person suffering who decides who's suffering how much and anyway I, I, I'm, I'm jumping here but let, let's get to your your diagnostic good bad and ugly <laughs> okay um to um in a way uh, appreciate uh the um diagnosing and and to see that it's what it's good for and to avoid some of the side effects uh, of which you also mentioned with regards to when we we start to focus so much on diagnosis so we get forget the persons who actually has the diagnosis to do so i think it's important to to acknowledge uh, the functions of of diagnosis and and one of the interesting function and very important functions not to forget is the explanatory power of of diagnosis because uh, diagnosis can explain to the patient, but also to the professional, the situation that the person is in, both to the person him or herself, but also to others. So if I, I am uh, uh, ill, if I have a disease with a diagnosis, I cannot uh, do as I normally do. So it explains why I really experience my situation as it is now. And also this warrants, uh, the diagnosis warrants attention from healthcare professionals. So and also it directs the attention or actions of health uh, professionals to reduce people's pain and suffering. So that's another very important function. And also a fourth uh, function is to assign social rights. So diagnosis provide access to care and sickness benefits. So that's really an important, crucial function of diagnosis and also why it's important for some uh, patient group to have uh, their condition registered as uh, diagnosis. And of course, uh, diagnosis, they 
free us from social obligations, such as work or we get sick leave, and even more, and that comes back to uh, to the uh, personal aspect of, of diagnosis. Diagnosis, they influence people's identity and their biography and what they can have of future plans. And so that's also very important on a personal level. And they can thereby induce relief because, oh, now finally I know what is happening to me. But also on the other hand, anxiety, and there are many reasons why diagnosis induces anxiety. It can be false labels, but false tests or incidental findings, but also because the prognosis of the condition is quite poor. And then, of course, uh, we can use uh, the labels uh, in ways that are futile or unnecessary and result to unnecessary uh, treatment. And that is uh, what happens in, in the case of overdiagnosis, because then we get a diagnosis that is not helpful for us because it labels a condition which will never develop into anything we experience like symptoms or disease or even death. So it's something we die with and not of. And also, interestingly, uh, diagnoses uh, are related to status and prestige because diseases and diagnoses have different statuses and prestige. Uh, a Norwegian uh, sociologist found that uh, health professionals, uh, they have um, they put high prestige on diseases which are organ-specific, high up in the body, where you can use advanced technologies that are acute, uh, where you actually can do something. All these conditions and diagnosis, they will have a high prestige. And those where you can't specify them, they're not organ specific, they may be low in the body, they are chronic, they have a, a low prestige. So, of course, it's also important to know what happens or how uh, health professionals um, have or assign attribute various types of uh, status and prestige so to the different types of diagnosis. And just to, to mention two other uh, functions of, um, of uh, diagnosis is uh, stigma and discrimination because specific diagnosis can result in stigma and also discrimination. Obesity may be just one example. And the final is also that uh, diagnosis can give uh, a psychological and existential burden because you're afraid of, okay, what's going to happen to me? Can I take care of my family? How will, how will this develop? How will this change my, uh, my life in the future? So as we can see, there are very many functions of diagnosis and they're good and bad. And we, uh, I think it's very important we, uh, we address uh, all of them and also to, uh, in a way, to uh, use the good ones and avoid uh, the bad ones. Great. And I've got, I mean, there's lots of thoughts that have arisen, but I suppose the first, the first one is when you said that diagnostic labels or diagnoses can be used by clinicians to better understand the, the patient. And it comes back to our original point that that what happens with the diagnosis, it doesn't drag with it that meaning and suffering, does it? I mean, it's, the diagnostic label is largely in biomedical, biological terms that it, there isn't some kind of meaning around suffering which resides within the diagnosis, that it's an active process of the clinician to actually pursue that meaning or how that diagnosis is manifesting in that person's life. But that's, it's not as easy, so you, you weren't saying this, but it's, it can, it can help the clinician to potentially understand the, the person with the diagnosis, but it's not, 
an automatic process. It requires more than just the diagnosis to exist. It requires the clinician to to think deeply about how this diagnosis is is affecting that person in, in other ways. And medicine doesn't always automatically assume that position. It's the diagnosis which is, as we said, focused on often. No, I, th- I think you. it's an excellent point, actually. And, and that's also where uh, some of the basic challenge lies for modern healthcare because uh, as previously uh, diagnosis were very closely connected to manifest disease you can see it you can exp- people tell about their experience so it's very closely connected to suffering what has happened as we have become extreme, extremely good at detecting conditions that may lead to disease and we put diagnosis labels on that, we in a way decouple diagnosis from suffering. And in doing that, we also in a way decouple the moral impetus, moral imperative of helping people from the tools that we apply. And this, of course, may make us uh, very biomedically oriented because many of the diagnoses are biomedically oriented. They are given us by various types of advanced instruments. We can see them by MRI machines or by advanced blood tests, and they're both detective and predictive, and, and, and they're very, very, very good. Uh, so they may shift our focus towards the biomedical. And, and that's one of the points I think Mariana and I are making in, in the paper is that we need to reconnect diagnosis to the suffering because that's where we actually can help people it's fully understandable that we try to use all the technologies and all the means that we have to really find, for instance, precursors of disease by finding them and uh, trying to treat them to preempt disease in the future. So so the, the logic behind this is perfectly understandable, but we're preoccupied with one of the side effects when we become so good at diagnosing all these conditions uh, which we can identify and detect and maybe even treat if we then do not pay attention to what the diagnosis is actually there for, i.e. to try to help people and benefit them. Marion, I wondered if you wanted to say anything as the as the clinician about some of the functions that Bjorn spoke about discrimination, guilt, stigmatization, the kind of psychological burden of a diagnosis, whether or not you've experienced any of those phenomena with your patients and whether or not you've, yeah, when, when reviewing medicines with patients, whether you sense any of these, these particular effects of a diagnosis. Well, I had an example uh, last week uh, of um, an old woman who, who had uh, hypertension and uh, she used uh, medicines uh, due to this hypertension. And when she was admitted to the hospital, she she had heard from the physicians that uh, she actually had low bro- blood pressure. And she was really confused because she had always heard that uh, her blood pressure was high now it was low and she was confused. Okay, do I have this hypertension anymore? Uh, do I need my medicines anymore? So I believe uh, that we need to communicate close uh, with the patient around the diagnosis and also around the medicine if they need them or not and possible side effects. 
it's really interesting. I mean, there's, a, there's an expression, and I don't know where it came from. It was a paper around language and diagnosis in, I think, the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapies. I think that the authors were, goodness, I'm not going to remember now, am I? Um, I'll put it in the show notes. But the, the phrase was something like, words are like toothpaste. Once they're out of the tube, they're impossible to put back. And I suppose diagnosis might be the same, or at least the words which kind of um, deliver the diagnosis, that once you've been told you have something, even if you, you can't really be untold that, or you can be untold it or de-diagnosed it, but I suppose for many patients, the kind of psycho-behavioral imprinting which takes part, people behave differently, they think differently, they've been carrying this diagnosis of hypertension or back pain or osteoporosis for you know weeks, days, months, decades, to then say, oh, actually, no, <laughs> you haven't got it. You know, there may be you know them embodying that diagnosis for so long and having that kind of social validation for it of it. Yeah, it may not be so easy, mightn't it? Just to saying, just kind of de-diagnosing. And I'm not implying that it's an easy process, but hmm. it, it, it may there may be a hangover effect. Yeah, I think that's an important point, and I have to explain why you're de-diagnosing and and maybe explain benefits with de-diagnosing and. Even if we de-diagnose, patients can have a risk of developing disease. So I believe it's very important with with the communication and close col- communication and collaboration with uh, the person holding the disease when you de-diagnose. Uh, but this, yeah, this this, wom- this woman uh, I told you about, she was really confused because. I, as a pharmacist, asked her, which kind of medicines do you use at home? And she said, I've used antihypertensive drugs, but uh, now I'm not sure if if, uh, I'm going to use them anymore since I now have a low blood pressure. So it creates a lot of uncertainty in someone's world if they relied upon and that sounds, I don't mean it to be condescending, but they've this, this medicine is featured in their lives for so long to suddenly remove it. it must be quite difficult for patients. And also, I think you point to something else, which is quite important, and that is uh, it can be hard for a health professional because if we take something away that has been given for a long time, it indicates that we've done something wrong. And also it relates to some of the biases which I've studied in other research. There's a aversion asymmetry so health professionals they they're more afraid of overlooking ignoring things than overdoing things so it's easier to to give too much than to give too little so so there's some interesting things and this is makes it quite uh, challenging also to de-diagnose because people feel that something is taken away from them but I think uh, Marion has addressed this quite uh, nicely also in our paper that it's very, very important that this happens in collaboration uh, with the patient. And also, Marion, maybe you want to mention there was a second, well, there were three examples in the paper, but the second one was around a, a child, I think, with ADHD or was diagnosed with ADHD. And the, the example describes the, the process of de-diagnosing that. Perhaps you want to say something about that example? That example was uh, a boy diagnosed with ADHD in his childhood. Um, the boy is now 20 years old and a re-evaluation of the diagnosis shows 
no ongoing symptoms that would indicate ADHD. So the ADHD diagnosis is not valid anymore and we believe that this could be de-diagnosed. In that example, was he medicated up to the age of 20 for, for ADHD or what was the, do, do you recall the prescription context? Uh, I think we haven't uh, described this okay. in, in the example, if he's medicated or not, I believe. In my head, he was not medicated. <laughs> and, and then I suppose the next question would be the connection between de-prescribing and de-diagnosing. And we mentioned before, diagnosis and prescription are intricately linked, aren't they? That it's a, almost the, the natural consequence in many cases that you receive a drug for your diagnosis. So tell us about the, the unraveling, decoupling, I'm not quite sure what the phrase is, of, of de-diagnosis and de-prescribing. Yeah, we, we believe that uh, de-diagnosing can be a framework to be used ahead of de-prescribing. And when we de-prescribe, we often discontinue long-term treatment and patient perception on such discontinuation have been suggested to be, I was told to take this until I die. Are you saying I'm about to die? Or my other doctor told me I should never stop this drug. Are you saying he was wrong? Uh, do, do you know what you're doing? So we believe that starting out with the diagnosing ahead of the prescribing may make it easier to understand and accept the process for the patient. Because if a diagnosis is not present anymore, it must be indisputable and obvious that no further treatment is needed. And in this way, the diagnosing combined with the prescribing may lead to less uncertainty for patients. So, so de-diagnosing, and again, maybe it's now's a good time to restate exactly what that is. And as a follow-up, is to begin to say what it looks like on a kind of population level or societal level, but also as Marianne pointed out, on an individual level, what that conversation might be like. So... So maybe if we get to the nub of what de-diagnosing is and then what it looks like. Yeah, we define de-diagnosing as uh, the removal of diagnoses uh, that do not contribute to reducing the person's suffering. Uh, that is when the person is better off without it. Um, de-diagnosing is a framework for an overall concern for a person's health and the purpose is to avoid non-beneficial diagnosing and provide appropriate care across patient populations and also across healthcare levels. The diagnosing will also reduce multimorbidity and polypharmacy. And the diagnosing includes but go beyond removing conditions that are resolved due to cure, recovery or rehabilitation. So there are many reasons for removing diagnosis. Uh, however, de-diagnosing refers to the active removal of one or more diagnosis uh, because an overall assessment reveals that specific diagnoses are more harmful than beneficial to the individual person's health. And in our paper, we introduce a specific procedure for de-diagnosing 
First, one should re-evaluate each diagnosis on the basis of the current patient clinic, uh, relevant tests and measurements, and applicable guidelines. For each diagnosis not valid or relevant anymore, one should de-diagnose. Then one should confer with patient opinions and preferences, assess which actions each diagnosis triggers, and consider if and assess when and how a diagnosis will benefit or harm the individual patient. For each diagnosis, one should perform an overall assessment of whether the person is better off without it. If the diagnosis do not contribute to reducing the person's suffering, one should de-diagnose. And it's uh, important that de-diagnosing is conducted in close collaboration with the patient and through shared decision-making. That's great. And you also, so really you're, you're, you're implying not just a kind of a way of de-diagnosing, but diagnosing, right? I mean, if, the, if you can undiagnose something based on the kind of social, psychological context of that individual, then you should diagnose on the basis of those same aspects. So, for example, you might, we're going through the process of de-diagnosing and you can, you're considering the person as a, as a whole, you might choose to keep that diagnosis. That's one possibility. And you'd keep that, that diagnosis based on, so essentially re-diagnose or whatever the phrase is. So, so I wonder if there is, if you've thought of it that way, that actually this is a call for just a re-evaluating how we diagnose, period, rather than how we de-diagnose. Yes, I, I think it's uh, an excellent observation. Uh, and, and because... Uh, it relates very much to the functions of diagnosis. If, if diagnosis really helps people, they should definitely be applied. And sometimes they should be reconsidered, re-evaluated, assessed. Is this actually good? Does it depict the suffering of the person? Does it help the person with regards to reducing the suffering, having this diagnosis? And it's not like you can put any type of label of any type of, of person, of course, because there is a scientific professional background for for giving diagnosis. But at the same time, uh, there's a flexibility. Uh, and also, uh, it very much depends on the individual perspective and experience of the patient. It's not so that the patients can come uh, to the health service and, and demand specific uh, diagnosis, although they uh, may do so. <laughs> and it, they may put a quite large pressure on health professionals to do so. Or demand, sorry, or demand not to have a specific diagnosis. So if you clearly meet the biopsychosocial characterizations of a particular diagnosis, then you say, well, I don't want it, don't give it to me. Yes. I mean, are they in a position to refuse that diagnosis or they've got it whether they want it or not? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's very context-dependent, uh, depends very much on uh, on the diagnosis because uh, some diagnoses are quite, I mean, they're professional controversies and they are controversial. Uh, so in these case, those cases, you could say, well, that's uh, up for grabs. But uh, like uh, if, if, if a patient comes and says, okay, uh, I don't want a cancer diagnosis, uh, but the person has extended metastasis, then I think it's very hard to argue that, well, you don't have, uh, we, we, we don't put the cancer diagnosis on you because you think you don't have these. But 
we all can see the lumps that you have here and there, and, and they are actually metastases. So, so I think there are, there are limits. This goes back to the initial question you had with regards to the social construction of uh, of diagnosis. There definitely is a large social con- component, but certainly there are also uh, biological molecular mm. aspects to it. And I've got in my ears as we speak, and as we've used the word giving a diagnosis or putting on a diagnosis, I've got various critical theorists in my head saying about power and it's about clinicians, um, what's the word, kind of ruling over patients. But having that, you know, there's there's something about the diagnosis, it's deeply skilled and a little bit mysterious. Some people are really good at it, the diagnosticians, I suppose, and some people aren't so good and it's a skill that you learn through medical school or whatever, physio school or osteo school, that there is something about power there. I don't know how kind of critical theory bent you are, but about being given a diagnosis and it's the it's the it's within the remit of professionals to do that and patients don't really understand or they've got to be made to understand why this diagnosis is right for them and so whilst we say it's a social construct it doesn't seem like it's constructed with the patient i mean it's constructed through medicine or healthcare and then it's put on the the, the person? Am I being unfair to... No, I, I think it's a, um, a very fair observation. And of course, that's been part of the critique of uh, both medicine and healthcare, the power of diagnosing. Uh, and of course, that's also uh, when the tool, the classification system, the systems of diagnosis, uh, which are intended to, to help people also can have some of the side effects and and as it has the many functions which we discussed before, um, it is very powerful because it gives rights and removes duties and does all the things. And of course, it is important to to remember though that why are these classifications and diagnosis uh, settings important? Why do we have them? Well, that is to help people. And if the power is used in a way that does not help the person then uh, we, in a way, use the system um, beyond what it was uh, intended for and also what is in the goal of, of health professions, i.e. to try to, to help people. Of course, how to avoid that uh, is uh, and to avoid the, uh, the power of, of diagnosis uh, is a good and hard question. But at the same time, it is. It can be the power can also be both positive and, and negative. Although I agree that it very often is negative when I'm giving a diagnosis. I, I don't think is is correct or it doesn't fit with my experience of the condition. I feel that the the physician hasn't understood what what is uh, bothering me, my my suffering, and so forth. But at the same time, if I'm delusional, I'm I'm in a psychosis. I refuse to have a diagnosis. I think it's very good for the power to to play out. So the power is there. It's very forceful and it can be used for good and for bad. And I think what we're trying to target is to direct the power of setting diagnosis, giving diagnosis, directing diagnosis uh, has to be uh, critically assessed and reduced where it doesn't, uh, and in a way, uh, harnessed where it doesn't benefit the patient. And so that, that kind of brings me on, surprisingly nicely, to, to I suppose, the patient's role in de-diagnosing. So, it, it's, so, so it's about removing diagnoses that don't contribute to reducing the patient's 
suffering? So in terms of de-diagnosing, it, to me it seems like there is some involvement of the patient. So we just previously described diagnosis as a slightly paternalistic you know, kind of power exerted on the patient by medicine or healthcare. But in terms of de-diagnosing, it's about removing diagnoses which contribute to the person suffering or at least don't reduce the person suffering. What role does the patient have in that process? I mean, how does that, how does that look like? Can they just say, I didn't really fancy a diagnosis of osteoporosis? So, so maybe we could point to the example in the paper of a, of a female patient with osteoporosis. Yeah, uh, the example in the paper, it's a woman, uh, 94 years old, diagnosed with osteoporosis decades ago. A re-evaluation of the diagnosis shows that the diagnostic criterion is still present since the woman has experienced several osteoporotic fractures. So in in step one, uh, one could not uh, automatically de-diagnose because the diagnostic criterion is still there. But then when we assess the patient's opinion about the diagnosis, uh, the woman expresses worries and uncertainty as a result of the diagnosis and the risk of fractures. Uh, The diagnosis have triggered prescription of non-osteoporotic drugs. However, since life expectancy is considered considered to be short, uh, these drugs are no, now deprescribed. And the osteoporosis diagnosis is considered to harm the woman due to worries about the risk of fractures. So we believe that the diagnosis do not contribute to reducing the woman's suffering and that osteoporosis can be de-diagnosed. So that decoupling, so I guess I'm just going to get my head around. So so she's now de-diagnosed with osteoporosis, but she still has osteoporosis. What, what, what's the... And, I, and, I, and I'm not being facetious, but I'm, and I totally get that that the, the contribution of the diagnosis to her worries and anxiety. But what, what, how do we make sense of that? So if we give, if we index a bone scan or x-ray or whatever the imaging is, by some accounts she has osteoporosis in an objective medical sense. But with her, we'd say you have got it or it doesn't matter or you don't have it. How do we frame that? How do we make sense of it? Yeah, I believe that um, the diagnosis osteoporosis is, is a label and and for her this label is uh, making her uncertain and she's she's afraid of the risk of fractures so we believe that the diagnosis can be de-diagnosed here the woman will will still have the risk of fractures but uh, the label you can take away the label from her it's a very good example also of uh, of uh, what you pointed to earlier, Oliver, both with regards to the power, but also what really matters. Is it the biomedical perspective or is it the, the perspective of, of the patient? And also, as you mentioned, the DEXA scan, right? So you can have some kind of objective measure of this. But of course, then you have to ask yourself, okay, why do we have this measure? Is it to describe the bone structure of this old lady or do we measure it because we think that by measuring it, we can help her? 
And at the point where we have to like discern with regards to, okay, how much does biology, physiology count and how much, much does in a way the patient experience count? We in a way indirectly in this paper argue that, well, if the patient isn't harmed by having the say, uh, we should definitely let the person say, uh, have the say. Uh, and the reason is that we want to come back to uh, the original meaning of diagnosis, uh, where it's a labeling of a disease, where disease is something which is related to suffering and harm. So uh, in a way, it's a recoupling of suffering and diagnosis diagnosis what we want to obtain. And in those cases, it is important to, to acknowledge the perspective of, of the individual patient and the experience of the, the patient. Not to say that science doesn't matter or we shouldn't look at the DEXA scan or all the other types of inputs that we get from science, but it is in a way a recoupling of the goal of science to the purpose of healthcare and medicine, which is the benefit of the patient. Yeah, and also we 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 also state in the paper that the removal of a diagnosis diagnosis through the diagnosis is independent of future risk of disease. So we distinguish between diagnosis, disease, or illness on one side, and vulnerability or future risk of disease recurrence on the other. And this also connects to uh, what we have done in, in both medicine and healthcare is that we, we've used the labels, we have expanded the labeling of conditions. So we have included risk factors and we've included precursors of disease. And of course, this is a way of uh, dividing diagnosis from actually suffering. So there's not, if you, if you have a certain diagnosis, it doesn't mean that you suffer or even that you will suffer in the future. So this decoupling in a way, I think it's good for many purposes. For instance, to, to be able to do preventive uh, uh, measures and to avoid disease and in people, avoid suffering in the future. So that's perfectly fine. But we have to take care of and address some of the side effects of being so good at diagnosing to realize that, well, as we've become so good at diagnosing, diagnosis as such has uh, removed itself from actually the purpose of healthcare and medicine, i.e. to try to reduce the suffering of persons. And so I suppose just on that point, one of the questions was, whether de-diagnosing occurs on a population level or it's with the individual, to me, it would seem like it has to take place with the individual to begin to understand all those contexts. So, But the classification systems, whether it's the screening or pre-disease states, I mean, all, they, may, they, they stay as they are, but rather we just use them differently. Is that right? Or, or do we narrow it? Because we've, we've, we've crept, haven't we? We've got this diagnostic creep that you've described where everyone's ill, that's a really good uh, point and uh, um, an excellent also example with regards to like pre-diabetes or pre-dementia. So we, we, we uh, due to our uh, fantastic uh, diagnostic skills, right, mm -hmm. we expand uh, the realm of diagnosis, but at the same time, we do remove them from actual suffering. Uh, and, and we have to... Um, be sure that we connect them to, to suffering. So it's not like we, we should stop looking for preconditions where we can, but we should be very careful with the labeling. Uh, and here I think yeah, we can't emphasize the title of, of your program enough. 
words, they do really matter. Uh, and I think there are some good examples uh, also with regards to uh, in the field of, of, of cancer and cancer uh, treatment. For instance, where we give precursors of a disease, the label of the disease, uh, we have a, a range of these preconditions like pre-diabetes or pre-dementia. And in cancer care, we have precursors labeled after the cancer, uh, which may develop, uh, for instance, uh, prostate cancer or ductal carcinoma in situ. And, and when people hear carcinoma, they become concerned and anxious, even if there may be a low chance, a small chance that they will ever develop cancer. So really, uh, words do matter. And this is also why uh, it has been suggested to, to use, for instance, uh, terms like indolent lesions of epithelial origin instead of breast or prostate cancer for, for these cases. So what we here can do is, in a way, in the manner we label the conditions. So when we use names for it, we should also be careful with regards to what the names allude to. Because like we have colorectal cancer screening programs where we look for colorectal cancer by name, but what we actually look for is the polyps, right? We find the polyps, we move the polyps, and very, very few people actually have cancers in these polyps. They may, of course, develop to, to cancer, but by calling it a screening program and calling uh, in a way the conditions that we find or remove, calling them after specific diseases like cancers, we may frighten people and we may also not be quite honest with regards to what we do. So we, in my opinion, we could call it polyp screening program instead because it's that's what we actually do. So uh, we should be careful with regards to the labeling. So, so the point I think we're making, or at least we try to make, is that we shouldn't stop labeling things, but we should be very conscientious and very careful with regards to what we label the things and what kind of associations uh, they have. Because there, there's so many conditions and so many precursors of disease, which I think is important to try to find, but we shouldn't associate them too closely to the disease if there is no correlation for that. If it's very, very rare that these types of preconditions result in, in, in the disease, we should be careful with regards to this labeling and also think very carefully about does the person benefit uh, from having this label or not? And some are very risk aversive and they will definitely benefit from having the label. While others, they are so afraid for, for being labeled and for that hampering their life and their living a fruitful and, and happy life. So they would definitely not benefit from it. So, so I think that's quite important. And can I ask, what's the response you've had from medical colleagues around this this paper and, and your subsequent ones this because i guess you know the implications is that we may be potentially rationing a particular expertise and saying do less of this or do it much more carefully or even doing it wrong up until now and to clinicians so i wonder if you've had much pushback or kind of commentary from colleagues which object to such a a, a kind of scaling back of diagnosis well, I, I believe uh, some have uh, have asked the same questions that uh, you you have done today, uh, but I guess I have experienced a lot of positive comments on the paper, and um, the problem of 
too much medicine or overuse in medicine is uh, is getting more and more attention. And uh, I believe that uh, physicians and specialists, they agree that this is a, an important theme. So that's my, my experience. I think um, the rationing issue is, is quite important to, to address explicitly because uh, people say, oh, is this just a way of saving money, like de-diagnosing people to get them out of, uh, of, of care? Uh, but I think it's very important to, to realize that's, that's not the case. The, the challenge we face with in, in the healthcare system today is uh, definitely that we, we can do much more for people than we have resources to actually do. And in order to do uh, as much good as we can, it's so important that we try to avoid doing things that do not benefit to people because it's not like there's anybody going to be unemployed in the healthcare system in any type of future we can imagine. So therefore, it's so important that we try to get rid of those low-value care aspects and really focus the resources and the attention at the high value care where we really can make a difference for people suffering. And it comes back to the the delicacy of that conversation. So I'm just thinking about a family example. So my mother, uh, who's healthy and well, but had thyroid cancer decades ago, but subsequently had her thyroid removed and takes thyroxin to, to keep her thyroid hormone levels up but every six months she has a blood test to monitor the levels of thyroxine or you know whichever the marker is but every time there's a slight adjustment to her dose it either stays the same or it goes up it goes down whatever but there's quite a it's quite a big event you know so once you might one doctor might say oh we're going to reduce your dose oh they're going to reduce my there's a kind of family discussion about having a dose reduced or it's going to go up and I suppose, and that's just, that's an ongoing process of dose modification, not necessarily de-prescription, but you can, the extremity of that is you are no longer going to take this medicine. I mean, we would probably have to have a, you know, a family counselling meeting about what this means, but you can imagine that this process of de-prescription would require lots of counselling, and I'm using commas again, but lots of conversations with patients about what this means and you're not going to die or it wasn't mm. wrongly prescribed. Mm. Yeah, and also that uh, a patient's uh, health status can uh, be changed uh, when they are getting older. So it's it's a need to reevaluate the complete health status once in a while, I believe. But you also point to some other interesting aspects uh, with regards to going to controls as a result of having a diagnosis. And and in this case, uh, you mentioned you may need to have this follow-up for quite a long time. But for other cases, for instance, for prostate cancer after an elevated PSA test for some time and you, you decide, okay, we have to move this person to active surveillance, person will have a diagnosis of prostate cancer of some type and then will be surveilled for a long time and maybe has to go to an MRI every year for 20 or even longer years. Then it comes it becomes quite interesting to see, okay, and I think many of the patients, they are very worried the days, the weeks before they go to this yearly control and they are very, very relieved afterwards. But after doing this for 20 years, it's time to reevaluate. 
do I really need this uh, diagnosis and, and do I really need these yearly controls? Of course, they are relieving, but the really reason they are relieving is because I have this appointment, of course. So then you have to make a, a specific assessment and obviously discuss it very closely with the patient, but also the family, I think. It's a brilliant example, actually. Uh, and also, it, it really highlights some of the challenges with regards to, okay, uh, why do we have the diagnosis in that case? Well, the system needs it to get the rights, i.e. access to care, but otherwise the person could be perfectly fine without it. So at a certain point, the system becomes in a way the reason we have the diagnostic system, The, I mean the healthcare system. And of course, in that case, you remove yourself from the patient, uh, which was your entrance question. Well, we seem to be more preoccupied with diagnosis than with the person. And the reason we are so is because we're, we need a system for that. So I, I think it's a really brilliant example. Yeah. yeah. And, and like you said, I think I had a question somewhere where comments saying that the healthcare system would crumble if we were to begin to shake the foundations of a diagnosis and say, well, actually, it's not this or it's that. It, like you said, it, it, it relies on clear diagnostic criteria or you know, kind of taxonomies or classifications to begin to streamline into pathways of care. Yeah, it's a way to systematize our knowledge and also our actions and our interactions. So it's very, very important. But at the same time, it's so important, crucial that we remember why do we have this system? Who is it there for? Um, as I'm looking at the time and you guys have been really generous with with your time. So thank you so much. And and whenever you need to, to do something on, on the relationship between overdiagnosis and uh, uh, medicalization, let me know, Oliver. There's a really, uh, you had a very good question there. We, we, we will save it for later, okay? Björn, Marianne, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Oliver. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.